I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. How long does it take to sell a script to Star Trek? Well, in my case, it took 17 months, almost a year and a half. I know this because I have in my hand a pitch letter from the Star Trek The Next Generation showrunner, Michael Piller, giving me sort of a warm-up to my first pitch. And that letter is dated October 7th, 1991. After 17 months of pitching, I finally sold a story concept to Star Trek, and it became the episode entitled Timescape. And I also have in my hand, I have my hands full right now, I also have in my hand the final draft of the shooting script for Timescape, and that's dated March 29, 1993. Let me tell you, those were 17 of the longest months of my life. But for right now, I want to start out by reading the letter I received from Michael Piller once I actually arrived at the pitching doorstep. So, Michael Piller. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy. He was the showrunner for Star Trek The Next Generation. Brilliant writer. He he deserves so much credit for making Star Trek The Next Generation what it was. He made it it engaging. He made it honest. He made it meaningful. I can't really say that I ever got to know him, even though I worked with him on five different episodes to one degree or another. So all I can really tell you about him is anecdotal. And there is one Michael Piller anecdote that I think is kind of funny and says a lot about him. So the Star Trek offices were in the Hart building. I imagine they still are at Paramount Studios. It's a building that was named after an old old cowboy, an old Western hero who starred in Paramount uh, Pictures back in the day. William S. Hart, I believe, was his name. So we're working in the Hart Building, and Michael Piller had a really amazing office in the Hart Building. It was incredibly long and incredibly narrow. It was kind of a combination office and conference room, so he needed space for a lot of different things. So it's very long and very narrow, and on one end of the office is the entrance, the door, which goes through first his assistant's office, and then on the far, far other end of the room is Michael Piller's desk. So, you get what I'm saying. Michael's desk is as far as humanly possible from the entrance to his office. And you'll soon see why. I remember a time I was working on one of the episodes. I couldn't tell you which one. But I was working in the Hart Building and I needed to find out something from Michael's assistant. I didn't need to talk to Michael himself. I just needed to talk to his assistant. So I enter the assistant's office, and the door to Michael's office is open. And there's Michael on the far end of the office sitting at his desk working on something. And I say hi to the assistant, and I I tell her what it is I'm, I'm there for, what I'm looking for. And as I'm talking, I can't help but notice the door to Michael's inner office is slowly swinging shut, very quietly. And as I stand there, the door closes and latches. And the message is very clear. Michael Piller does not want to talk to me. And it just amazed me. I realized this was not an electrical device on his door. What I had seen him do was reach up and pull on a string. He had a string set up 
running the length of his office, a string on pulleys, whereby he could just tug on the rope at his desk and slam the door shut in the face of of anybody who wanted to talk to him. I'm happy to say he didn't slam it in my face, but I thought the whole thing was really, really quite hilarious. And I think it says something about Michael. I'm not sure what exactly, but it says something about his character. Anyway, I scored with a spec script that I submitted to Star Trek. They invited me to come in and pitch stories for Next Generation. And here here was my introduction to the world of writing for Star Trek. It's a one-page letter Again, dated October 7th, 1991, and it's headlined in bold, To all writers coming in to pitch, a few do needs and don't needs as of this date, Michael wrote. He goes on to say, We are sorely lacking in good, simple science fiction premises along the lines of The Host, in which Beverly falls in love with an intelligent parasite that changes bodies, or The Nth Degree, in which Barclay is suddenly gifted with extraordinary intelligence. Michael goes on to say, Still don't have an environmental premise that excites us. Problems to avoid with this area include focusing the story too much on a planet in vast environmental trouble, dealing with the political issues of environmentalism, creating excessive sets and effects, and failing to turn the story so that it is a personal one for one of our crew. And then he continues with this list of do's and don'ts. He says, want to do a show on literacy this season. He says, don't bring in any more Klingon slash Romulan stories. Well, that was disappointing because I'm pretty sure I had some Klingon Romulan stories ready to go that I had to dump. He says, no more war stories. And this next one is my favorites. He says, we have all the wharf stories we need. Now, come on. How can you have all the wharf stories you need? There, there are unlimited wharf stories. All right, so let's get past that. He says, we have enough stories involving children. He says, we need bottle shows. Well, that's not a surprise. They always need bottle shows. Just so you know, a bottle show is an episode that takes place entirely in one or a very few standing sets. It's a cheap way to make a, an episode because they don't have to build new sets and they don't have to go on location to shoot. They can just use everything they already have built in the studio to make the show. And the final point on Michael Piller's list, do not pitch sequels to past stories, including stories which reprise Jack Crusher. I am glad to say I I never even considered doing a story that would bring back uh, Jack Crusher. That just seemed like a dead-end street to me. So I'm glad they didn't. So that's the memo I got from Michael Piller before I came into pitch. Pretty instructive, but I needed more information than just that. I also needed what we call the series Bible. So now in my other hand, I have the Star Trek The Next Generation Writers slash Directors Guide. Now, This is copyright Paramount Pictures, so I may be violating copyright here um, by quoting extensively from the guide, but I think I'm okay because it's over 30 years old. But let's see what happens. So the title page, Star Trek The Next Generation, third season, revised August 1989, by none other than Gene Roddenberry. If I'm not mistaken, this may be the final story Bible that Gene would have worked on before he passed away, seeing as this one is for the third season. At any rate, Gene wrote the book on Star Trek, and now you're going to hear about it. 
First page, I always really liked. Well, first of all, there's the table of contents. We can skip that. But on page one, it starts out with this statement, all underlined, triple spaced, so it dominates the page. It says, These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, her continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Now, Sharp Trekkies will notice a couple differences between this opening narration and the original from the original Star Trek series. But at the end of that quote, there's an asterisk, and the asterisk leads you to the bottom of the page where a note says, During the years of Captain Kirk's Enterprise, 4% of the galaxy had been charted, not explored, since this would have required visits to the approximately 11 trillion stars in just that tiny portion of the galaxy. In fact, so huge is the galaxy that only 19% of it has been charted, much less explored, by the time of this 24th century Star Trek. And then in parentheses it says, So much for the question, are there any new Star Trek stories? Ha! Of course there are. So we flip the page to page 2, and the heading says, The Star Trek Format. And here's a listing of the types of stories that they tell that they want to tell on Star Trek The Next Generation. First up, people stories. Exciting drama has always been about people. Yes, it takes place in the 24th century, which involves a certain amount of high-tech gadgets and spaceships and such, but their importance to Star Trek is about the same as we see in the use of 20th century automobiles, telephones, and police revolvers. And Star Trek handles 24th century gadgetry just as casually. It is how that technology affects our continuing characters that is important. Next paragraph. Stories emphasizing a family ensemble crew. We do not emphasize only a star and co-star. The secret of Star Trek has always been in making the audience identify with all the continuing characters. If Troy, Data, or anyone else feels pain or joy, we insist upon the audience feeling that with them. Yes, our stories often feature exciting guest star characters who are not members of our starship crew and not necessarily human either. But the focus of the tale is how the outside characters and events affect our continuing characters. However fascinating alien life forms may be and how imaginative you write them, Star Trek is not interested in stories centering on how the whatchamacallums interact with the thingamajiggians. Okay, but I would have loved to see that episode anyway. Next paragraph. Star Trek goes for stories, quote, about a subject of some interest or significance today. It can be as light and pleasant as the question of the nature of humor to something as heavy as an examination of the basics of terrorism. And I'm sorry to say, Mr. Roddenberry misspelled terrorism. He left out an R. Or touch on any one of 10,000 other subjects, large or small, about the experience of being a human. The right kind of story is one that interests today's audience despite its 24th century setting. Stories that entertain. Our series takes place at a time when humans can perform wonders, and we want our audience to identify with the excitement of that. Our starship travels to strange new worlds, visits civilizations, uses holodecks, transporters, intelligent machines, automated food dispensers that can cook like the finest Federation chefs, and a thousand other exciting things. Also exciting aliens and alien dangers, too. 
In 23 years of Star Trek, we've learned how to stay close enough to science, fact, and theory, and common sense, to make these wonders all seem real. New ideas! Our technique is to entertain our viewers until they relax, then zing them with something our writers believe is important to say to today's audience. Whatever the time frame of dramatic stories, in the end, they are all about today. Stories that show a somewhat better kind of human than today's average. Our continuing characters are the kind of people that the Star Trek audience would like to be themselves. They're not perfect, but their flaws do not include falsehood, petty jealousies, and the banal hypocrisies common in the 20th century. Important. Regular characters all share a feeling of being part of a band of brothers and sisters. As in the original Star Trek, we invite the audience to share in the same feeling of affection for our characters. Page 3 shows a couple of artist's renderings of the USS Enterprise. And page 5 is actually one of my favorites, because page 5 is an aerial view of the Starship Enterprise, uh, NCC-1701D from Next Generation. Overhead view showing the dimensions, but it's superimposed over a map of the Paramount Studios. And it just so happens that they are the exact same size. This page always cracks me up because it just doesn't seem possible. Paramount Studios never felt that huge to me. I mean, granted, I only explored one small corner of it, the Star Trek end of things. But man, the, the idea that this gigantic starship is just as big as, you know, a couple city blocks, it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. I wish I could share the graphic with you. Next graphic is also pretty fun. It's a very detailed sketch of the bridge of the Enterprise, and pretty much everything is labeled. Pretty much everything is described. Um, did you know that there is a washroom? Well, of course, they call it the head on a ship. I don't know if anyone in the show ever called it that or ever referred to it at all. But there is a door. If you are seated in front of the captain's chair looking at the back of the bridge and you turn your head about 80 degrees to your left, you will see an exit door that leads to the conference lounge and the head or washroom. I find that very interesting. Not many shows even mention characters having to go to the bathroom. And yet here we are, it's part of the show Bible. I remember when Star Trek The Next Generation was just getting its start and all the, all the Trekkies in the world, myself included, were just crazy with anticipation, just gobbling up every bit of news we could about what, what changes are they making? Are the uniforms going to be different? Are the spaceships going to be different? And one of the things I remember people constantly talking about was, why was there only one entrance and exit to the bridge of the Enterprise in the original series? And until I started reading that, I had never thought about it before. But duh, of course. Why isn't there a second entrance or exit? Shouldn't there be an emergency exit in case one of the doors malfunctions or gets blocked? Well, of course, they solved that problem in Next Generation. Because I can see right here on the diagram of the bridge, there are at least three doors, entrances and exits. No, I'm sorry, there are four. Because there are two turbo lift doors, one in the back and one in the front, and then there is the door I mentioned before going to the conference lounge in the head, and then there is the additional door leading to the captain's ready room. So four entrances and exits on the bridge of the new Enterprise. 
Now, what comes next in the show Bible? Why, descriptions of the characters, of course. These, I, ha- I had a lot of fun rereading these before recording this uh, episode, frankly. It's really nice to get reacquainted, not just with not just with the characters as they started out, but the characters as Gene Roddenberry himself saw them. I think that's one of the funnest things about this whole thing, is we're, we're seeing Star Trek literally through Gene Roddenberry's eyes. So, the series characters. Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Picard deserves the description distinguished. A born explorer and superbly experienced starship commander, he served on an incredible 22-year voyage as captain of the legendary deep space charting vessel, the USS Stargazer. Born in Paris, France, Picard betrays a Gaelic accent only when deep emotions are triggered. Quite often, however, there's a touch of French phrasing in his speech. He is in prime physical condition, definitely a romantic. He sincerely believes in concepts like honor and duty, Although on issues that affect the safety of his crew and starship, he can be completely pragmatic and tough as hell. Now, I just want to pause here for a second. I do not remember ever hearing Captain Picard with a Gaelic accent. And I do not remember there ever being a touch of French phrasing in his speech. So I don't know if this was something Gene Roddenberry always envisioned for Captain Picard, but it never came to fruition. I don't know if it was something that Patrick Stewart just wasn't interested in doing, who knows, but it's an interesting little detail. To continue, Picard demands absolute authority in his role as starship captain. On the other hand, he has learned that there are many more times at which a leader needs advice, counsel, and even critical comment from his subordinates. He invites this and expects his crew to know when the situation does or does not permit it. Picard's vast experience has left him capable of arranging which one he needs, when he needs it. He enjoys the privileges that go with his rank and vessel, also the eccentricities permitted. He knows that a certain amount of selfishness is healthy and necessary to the captain of a starship this vast, engaged in missions of this importance, and under so much emotional pressure. He does not hesitate to make his prejudices known to his crew, an example of which is his insistent that he does not like children. In the case of Wesley Crusher, Picard simply changes the rules by insisting he does not regard acting Ensign Crusher as a child. Now, here's the part I really enjoy about the character studies. After telling us who Picard is, Gene Roddenberry then goes on to describe his relationships with the other major characters in the show. Picard and Riker have a very close relationship. In fact, closer than between any other two people on board. Picard and Riker have a very close relationship, in fact, closer than between any other two people aboard. This is made necessary by the fact number one knows that his captain is to be obeyed instantly where necessary, and yet to be offered advice and even objections when that is more important. He also knows that Picard expects him to know when it is time for which. We see the true closeness of this relationship in the fact Riker is able to judge what to do from Picard's slightest gesture or change in tone of voice. And we can also see that the first officer does not feel in the least humbled by this because he knows the safety of the starship and crew depends on the instantaneous understanding between captain and his next-in-command. Riker also knows that he can expect and get the same thing someday from his own number one, and in fact considers serving under Picard one of the most fortunate things that has happened to him in Starfleet. Picard and Deanna Troy. Now, I think it's also interesting that he goes to Deanna Troy immediately after Will Riker, because I th- 
I think that says something about how Gene Roddenberry envisioned the characters' relationships and the importance of those relationships. So obviously Picard's relationship to Deanna Troy was pretty special to Gene Roddenberry. Here's what he has to say. Picard and Deanna Troy. A most unusual relationship involving deep professional respect between both of them. In the 24th century, particularly in Starfleet, it is believed that human relationships deserve even more care and engineering than the ship's most complex mechanical devices and circuitry. Looking back on our 20th century, Starfleet is astonished that great clusters of jobs, personalities, and relationships were once thrown together almost haphazardly. The job of ship's counselor grew out of this belief that starship crew relationships needed more time, attention, and planning, and lubrication, than did hinges, circuits, and super widgets. Deanna Troy's capabilities as a half-betazoid of sensing the emotions of others, combined with her skills as a psychologist, qualify her superbly to assist Captain Picard in these areas. She never comments in the presence of others, but she is always and somewhat mysteriously available to her captain when needed. There is no physical intimacy in the Picard-Troy relationship. He knows she will protect him from ever seeming to be advised or corrected, and as a result, he has come to unashamedly depend on her expertise. Next up, Picard and Data. Picard and Data have a relationship which comes the closest to a feeling of friendship by the captain. He can be as strict toward Data as with anyone, or at least he believes he is being so. In fact, Picard admires the unusual purity of the android's makeup, and sometimes wishes he could be the same. And that's it for the Picard and Data relationship. After those big write-ups with Riker and Troy, I find it very funny that Data just gets one scant paragraph. And then the last person on the Picard relationships list, Picard and Guinan met long before he took command of the Enterprise. Picard and Guinan met long before he took command of the Enterprise, back when he probed the edges of unknown space aboard the USS Stargazer. He is the one who selected this alien woman for her 10 forward room assignment, and the only one aboard who knows her full background. We'll be aware that he is more than pleased with what she does aboard and that she amuses him greatly. First, we all remember Guinan was played by Whoopi Goldberg. All right, second major character sketch. Commander William T. Riker, number one whom the U.S. Navy would call the executive officer, is in his early 30s considered by Starfleet to be a top quality captain in training. His principal responsibilities are, one, to constantly provide the captain with the top condition vessel and crew, and two, to command away missions. Like all first officers, Riker feels highly possessive about the Enterprise, considers it his ship, quite understandably, since he is the one responsible for keeping the vessel polished and efficient. From time immemorial, first officers have considered the ship captain as one who merely uses the vessel. This creates no friction between Picard and Riker, since, after all, Picard was the same kind of proud first officer before becoming a captain. Important, he and the captain treat each other with genuine respect. In his own areas of responsibility, Riker makes his own decision without seeking the permission of Picard. While Riker seldom makes suggestions in the captain's area of strategic responsibilities, he will occasionally comment on tactical matters. And when he does, Picard treats his comments as something of value to be rejected only for very important reasons. One of Riker's special charms, shared also by the actor, is the twinkle in his eye, which suggests a very special sense of humor. Riker is called number one by the captain. 
Only rarely is he called that by an Enterprise crew member, and never by anyone not part of the Enterprise. Socially, his friends call him Will. Number one is a term whose meaning has not changed appreciably since Earth's 17th century, when the second-in-command of sailing ships were called first officers, hence number one being used as the equivalent of first. In those same ancient days, the ship's number one was also usually in command of shore parties. The life of a ship captain has rarely been considered expendable. And that remains the same today in the 24th century, where our own number one takes over the risk of acting as missions commander on planet landings and other away missions. It is number one's responsibility not only to present his captain with a complementary functional vessel, but also with a fully trained crew. Although he refers to these jobs only half-humorously as his housekeeping functions, they are responsibilities that both yesterday's sailing ship and today's starship first officers treat almost as sacred trusts. Number one knows that neither today's nor tomorrow's captains can ever be completely effective without this kind of backup from their key subordinate. Riker accepts the responsibility for handling action assignments on planets and other away missions, not because he considers himself necessarily stronger or more agile than the captain, but rather because he knows that the success of the voyage and the mission would be considerably imperiled if the starship were to be deprived of Picard's vast knowledge and experience. Riker was born in Valdez, Alaska, and there is a strong outdoors pioneer quality in his personality. We like the fact that he carries a burning ambition to prove himself worthy of Picard's faith in him. Like the legendary 23rd century Kirk, when in his early 30s, our number one is very strong and agile and has a tendency towards daring do. Also like Captain Kirk, Riker has a healthy sex drive. Relationships Riker and Troy are old friends who had a tempestuous relationship sometime in the past. Somehow, it didn't work, and with both of them on the same vessel, each with very important responsibilities of their own, now that fire is only embers, a warm and comfortable friendship. Riker and Geordi have a special friendship, too, stemming from number one's realization that Geordi's blindness has interfered with his having a completely fulfilled social life. Riker himself enjoys a very fulfilled life, fulfilled in quotes, and is determined to arrange something of that for Geordi. I think we all know what they're talking about there. Finally, Riker and Wesley have a relationship based on the boy's hero worship of Riker, whom he sees as the complete and perfect Starfleet officer. Any suggestion from Riker is treated by Wesley as law. Lieutenant Commander Data an android so perfectly fabricated that on applying for a Starfleet commission years ago, he tested out as alive. This is a point of some pride to Data, whose Starfleet psychiatric profile, medical eyes only, lists the android as having the impossible dream of somehow, someday, becoming human. Robotics and artificial intelligence are well advanced in this 24th century, resulting in intelligent machines of many sizes and shapes and functions. It is well recognized now that creating perfectly human-like machines would be more of a stunt than something of practical value. Having seen considerable of the galaxy's broad diversity of intelligent life, humans no longer consider Earth's homo sapiens form to be evolutionary perfection. It is well accepted, however, that humans are very special and unique creatures. Although 24th century technology is capable of building robots that are physically identical to human form, it is still impossible to place the hundred zillion subtleties of human mind, instincts, needs, drives, etc. into a machine. Or at least this was considered to be so until a Dr. Soong, often called the Einstein of cybernetics, put data together in a remarkable laboratory on a far-off world. 
see STTNG's first season episode, Data Lore. Very good episode, I might add. Data is so perfectly fabricated that only a skilled biologist would know he is not composed of normal flesh and blood. Data's artificial skin is startlingly white, his eyes an eerie yellow, otherwise his appearance is that of a human in his mid-thirties. Of even more importance, Data's mind, instincts, needs, etc. are remarkably human-like. Not perfectly so, but in that we find this character's special qualities. As a Starfleet Academy graduate, he is totally loyal to Starfleet and his regulations, but also capable of being puzzled enough by some Starfleet practices to ask sensible, make that too sensible, questions about them. He is not the ship's science officer, he is not at all Spock-like, and never uses the word logical. He is broadly knowledgeable about science, but equally knowledgeable in almost everything else, too. This is because of his phenomenal memory, which is one of the reasons he was originally created. He serves the vessel as something of a walking library, with commensurate mental dexterity and reading speed. The crew at times uses him almost as an information console. He is also enormously strong and agile. He is completely incapable of understanding human humor, and this has become a continuing joke in the series. His most exciting character facets, however, involve his weaknesses and the things he cannot do. He is anything but a cool character and constantly exhibits an almost Christ-like naivete, which in fact has become something of his trademark. He is also literal to a fault. If told he was Christ-like, for example, his first reaction would be to look at his palms for nail holes. He never had a childhood and is fascinated by kids. Probably, however, he is more fascinated by human adults, no doubt because of his dream to be one of them. Relationships. Data and Geordi have a friendship based on the fact that they both see things from a somewhat off-center perspective. Geordi is Data's unofficial tutor on becoming more human. Data and Picard. The android is puzzled by Picard's wisdom, a special human quality that has to do with judgment and a host of intangibles, which are not facts or other information. And that's it. This really surprises me that the description of the relationship between Data and Captain Picard is basically a single sentence. As we all know, or we all should know, that relationship um, grew deeper and more intense and more meaningful throughout the rest of the series and into the Star Trek movies as well. So the fact that this Data and Picard relationship is treated so offhandedly is really surprising. Next character, Dr. Beverly Crusher. There's a note here that says the details of this are from the 1987-88 Bible. So some of this is repeated information, apparently. An extremely attractive woman. Now, it's okay. I'm just going to stop right there. Dumb way to start the character description of a female character. An extremely attractive woman, blah, 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 in her early to mid-40s. Our ship's CMO worked long and hard to get her assignment to the Starship Enterprise. She is one of the most talented and insightful physicians in Starfleet. She and Picard know each other from his delivering the body of her husband to her after a mission accident. While it wasn't Picard's fault, it was his orders that sent her husband there, and she has found it difficult to forgive Picard, although further stories will see the two developing a strong mutual attraction. Dr. Beverly Crusher is an intelligent and strong-willed diagnostician. She has a profound sense of medicine, the kind of skill that takes years to develop. Often she will use her diagnostic skills only to confirm what she already has seen, smelled, and sensed about a patient's condition. She is, first and foremost, a brilliant ship's doctor. She is a beautiful... 
And here we go again. She is a beautiful woman in her early 40s, but looks considerably younger. Okay. Her wit and intelligence and very female form, very underlined, have not escaped the captain's eye either. Beverly's husband, Jack Crusher, I'm really having a hard time getting through this. Beverly's husband, Jack Crusher, was killed while serving on the USS Stargazer with Captain Picard. Beverly still has a sense that Jack's death was somehow Picard's fault. She knows that it is not logical to blame Picard, but he is so identified with the event in her mind, and it was such a loss that she still has trouble dealing with Picard. Why, then, did she choose to sign aboard Picard's starship? Why, indeed? Because she has an enviable Starfleet record which has earned her this kind of plum assignment. And a Starship Chief Medical Officer, as we know from the original series, is in no way considered an inferior to the captain. In fact, a CMO's authority is the only means, other than a full court-martial, by which a captain can be relieved of duty. She has told herself that her contacts with Picard need not be more than routine, and whatever personal feelings she still has about the past can be controlled. Beverly also has her 17-year-old son, Wesley, to consider. The Enterprise represents a whole new life for the boy, who looks on starships the same way that today's teenagers look upon a Maserati or a Ferrari. Dr. Crusher returns to the Enterprise in the third season after being away at Starfleet Medical for a year. Ah, uh, okay, and that's why they used some info from the previous, a previous Bible, which is why some of this stuff was repeated in what I just read, because... Crusher was away from the show for a season. She was replaced by a Dr. Pulaski, who I have very, very dim memories of, except that I know that actress also played uh, a guest-starring role in an episode of the original series way back when. Next up, Lieutenant Commander Deanna Troy. She is the Starship Counselor, which describes one of the unique and important jobs in 24th century space travel. This shipboard position grew out of the increasing time Starfleet crews spent aboard their vessels as starships probed deeper and deeper into the galaxy. Starfleet Command realized that large numbers of people living in an artificial shipboard environment could result in a pressure cooker effect unless life aboard was carefully planned and arranged. By the time of our series, starship journeys are lasting 20 years or more, and some are carrying a thousand people or more. It became obvious what was needed. First, a shipboard community which duplicated as nearly as possible the security, challenges, and recreations of ordinary planet life. Next, since the crew members and inhabitants aboard the ship would have to live in a compressed environment, it should be arranged with as much care as the other operating parts of the vessel. Enter the concept of the ship's counselor, an expert in human engineering as much as starship's engineers are expert in the vessel's mechanics. Today, Starfleet Command is puzzled that the concept of human engineering was not practiced centuries ago when giant business corporations began appearing. We think of Commander Troy as just that, an expert in human engineering. She watches over the emotional condition of the entire crew as carefully as an engine room crew once watched trouble areas such as steam pipes and fittings. She's an expert at recommending to Picard the right kind of pressure release in the right place, or recommending the right mix of lubricating relaxation no comment, or whatever else is required by the human condition in shipboard surroundings. Because what she does is so basic to Starship Command, Picard and Troy are closely intimate in every way but physical. One of Picard's strengths, and a key to his wisdom, is the fact he does not pretend to always know everything about everything. 
The complete depth of the Picard-Troy relationship is known to few of the crew except Riker and the ship's doctor. It's important that each of them understands the counselor's function. To others, Troy carefully protects the chain of command by never letting it appear that she gives the captain advice. As they began working together, Picard quickly realized that Troy knows even his most intimate secrets, and has learned also that they are completely safe with her. The reason for some of this is that Troy is one half Betazoid. Her father was a Starfleet officer who lived on the planet Betazed, and fell in love with one of the females of that world. Although full-blooded Betazoids are completely telepathic, witness Troy's mother in the first season episode Haven, hybrids like Troy can seldom read minds but can actually read emotions. Knowing what people were feeling led her into becoming an expert psychologist, and ultimately into becoming a Starfleet counselor. Troy does not permanently occupy a bridge position, although she is somehow always there when Picard is confronted by a matter within her field of expertise. Sometimes they'll communicate with a look, a whispered word, and occasionally she will join him in his ready room. Important, she is not a meddler, and the Picard-Troy relationship never goes beyond the counselor function limits. I think that little aside comment there from Mr. Roddenberry may reflect the fact that some people tried to pitch stories in which they portrayed Deanna Troy as a meddler. Deanna Troy knew Riker on a previous shipboard assignment. On away planet missions, she provides Riker with the same kind of advice she gives Picard when shipboard. She can usually pick up something of the emotional patterns, and sometimes thought patterns, of about half of the intelligent life forms encountered, at least enough to provide some hint of how that life form regards the Enterprise and its crew. And no section on Troy's relationships with other characters. Interesting to note. Lieutenant Commander Geordi LaForge, one of my favorites. He is racially black and birth defect blind, although he wears a prosthetic super high-tech device which allows his brain to see almost the full electromagnetic spectrum from infrared to ultraviolet. Compared to Geordi, other crew members seem to be the ones who are really blind. The device is called VISOR, an acronym for Visual Instrument and Sensory Organ Replacement. In the first season episode, Heart of Glory, we duplicated what it is that Geordi actually sees. Totally without optical nerves from birth, his intelligence and spirit captivated a top medical electronics team. It led to the scientific effort to produce a sensor capable of modifying this electromagnetic spectrum with carrying these readings to the human brain. With his visor, Geordi's infrared vision can see the warmth of a recent footprint, use ultraviolet light to see through an opaque substance, and much more. The only thing Geordi misses about real eyes has to do with the quotation he once heard about eyes being the windows to the soul. I'm going to break in here and just say I think what Gene just described about Geordi's special abilities to see through an opaque substance or to see the warmth of a recent footprint, man, I wish they had made more use of that in the show. I don't, I don't even remember a time when they made use of it. I'm sure they must have, or Gene wouldn't have included it in the Bible, but wow, that should have been an ongoing thing. That would have made Geordi's character so much cooler. Anyway, back to the Bible and Geordi. After having spent a year on the Enterprise as the ship's engineering officer, Geordi has been promoted to lieutenant commander. Having gained broad shipboard experience with other officers of various specialties, he's the right person for the job, and he enjoys working at the job he was trained for. Something about these experiences has left him with a delightful sense of humor. Unlike Riker's sense of humor, Geordi's is highly vocal and visible and irreverent. For example, when something dangerous appears on the main viewer, Geordi is likely to say something like, uh-oh, 
Big trouble. Picard long ago gave up trying to curb this tendency with annoying looks. He accepts the fact now that Geordi is just too alive to be squelched easily. He is the starship's blithe spirit. I like that description. He has two shipboard positions depending on the circumstances. One, the main engineering console off the engine room. And two, a newly designed engineering console on the main bridge. This bridge console is activated only when Geordi is present. Riker and Geordi are closely connected by the fact that Geordi, along with Troy when there, is a particularly valuable member of the away team. He sees things that Riker needs to know about. In many ways, he is a walking tricorder. Also, Riker, whose nature lets him enjoy life broadly, feels an obligation to improve Geordi's social life. Seeing things as differently as he does has deprived Geordi of a range of interests, including sex. After all, Geordi sees women as electromagnetic waves. Riker wants him to learn to see them also as warm flesh and to be seen the same way in return. In a later 10-4 room episode, Geordi may become romantically involved with a, quote, perky redhead, unquote. Geordi and Data are close friends, drawn together by the fact that they both approach life in unusual ways. Soon after their first meeting, realizing that Data's android brain and Geordi's eyes see life in special ways, they secretly decided to band together into a team called the Perceivers. Although only a private joke, it gives them a sense of belonging. Geordi and Wesley have a special relationship, based on that young man's genius-level abilities in areas of ship engineering. See First Seasons Where No Man Has Gone Before. Picard has made Wesley's training one of Geordi's responsibilities. Lieutenant Worf! A Klingon, the only one to have graduated so far from Starfleet Academy, Worf is in charge of security for the USS Enterprise, a rather appropriate position for one from a race which considers military expertise the highest of all virtues. As a child, Worf lost his parents during a Romulan attack on the Federation outpost at Kittimer. Worf was the only Klingon survivor and was adopted by a human Starfleet family. Although his emotions and some of his values are Klingon, Worf is totally loyal to Picard and the Enterprise. In addition to his expertise on starship security, Worf is also of value to Picard as an expert on armaments of all types. He sees armaments much as a skilled musician is able to anticipate the sounds of an unknown musical instrument. Worf has little sense of humor, at least none that humans can translate. His speech pattern, however, can provide humor to us. He speaks in short, declarative statements... When on a world featuring lovely half-naked women, first season's justice, he summed up his impressions with, quote, nice planet, unquote. In the same episode, he confided that for him to have sexual relations with human-like females would be unwise. He would injure them. In the episode Hide and Q, we saw him deal with a Klingon female and saw a suggestion of what that meant. Worf is in fact very big and powerful, as befits one of her warrior race. One one-character relationship note for Worf, Worf and Wesley have a relationship based on the boy's adolescent infatuation with strength and bravery. We very much like Worf for never using that to sway Wesley away from appreciating human values. We especially like the fact that although Worf is caught between the values of two worlds and may sometimes suspect that the Klingon way might be better for him personally, Worf took an oath to uphold the Starfleet's principles, and he stays true to that. Last but not least... Wesley Crusher, a highly intelligent and winsome 17-year-old boy who came aboard with his mother, Beverly Crusher, the Enterprise's chief medical officer. 
He has a special relationship with Picard based on Wesley's father having been killed while serving under Picard's command years ago. During that first year, Wes's unusual intelligence, see episode where no one has gone before, won him an acting ensign appointment from Captain Picard. He has an iodetic or photographic memory in areas of starship engineering and related sciences. Several centuries ago, he might have been one of the young electronic wizards who were introducing computers to a puzzled world. Even in the 24th century, is it believable that a 17-year-old boy can become an acting starship officer? Several things help make it believable in our case, i.e., Picard keeps Wesley under tight rein, plus the fact that Wesley is almost certainly a genius, as shown in the above-indicated episodes. His remarkable abilities are not limited merely to being able to visualize broad categories of starship design and functioning. A computer could do that. The boy's abilities were compared by an advanced alien with the way Earth's Mozart could hear music by merely reading the score. Wesley's mind works similarly in areas of starship engines and other systems. He can not only visualize the starship's working parts, but also the potential of the designs he has called up from his memory. In other words, he can visualize things that the Enterprise's engines and circuitry could do if repatterned or re-engaged. Wesley's attitude toward all this is so casual that we'll wonder if he's really an idiot savant. In all other ways, he's a normal boy, filled with questions and enthusiasms of his 17 years, and our third season will see him played more as a 17-year-old than a genius. As is normal for a boy his age, he will be much less eager for work and will be disciplined for failing to keep up with the study schedule Picard has set for him. He still enjoys being able to hold down the Conbridge position, but would enjoy it a lot more if a girl his own age could see him at it. He will become very interested in girls. When faced with the real thing, however, he will encounter the same problems boys have always faced. For example, he will fall head over heels in love with that slightly older girl who considers him nothing but a child. He will also fall in love with a completely eligible girl, but will have his clumsiness and lack of experience send her away angry. He may also meet that older woman, which every inexperienced boy needs. And I'm just going to let that sit there, because I think we're learning a little too much about Gene Roddenberry's inner life. In the relationship descriptions, Wesley and Riker have a big brother-little brother relationship based on the fact that Riker typically feels for Wesley's difficulties. Wesley very much sees Riker as a hero, and the first officer takes advantage of that to challenge the boy to soar and dare. Wesley and Picard have more of a stern father and son relationship. Picard tries to do his duty toward the boy, and Wesley considers him too much of a disciplinarian. Fails to see the great affection for him that the captain hides. Wesley and Geordi are bound together by the fact that Geordi has responsibility for Wesley's training. Their association is also derived from a combination of the Enterprise engineer's blithe spirit and Geordi's specialty in Enterprise design, with which Wesley is so comfortable. Guinan. A new continuing character, Guinan is an alien female from a very distant planet. Picard, when a young officer on the USS Stargazer, was fascinated by members of her life form, which he met. Now captain of one of the vast galaxy-class starships with its immense crew and facilities, he has discovered that this very kind of person would be a perfect choice to operate the 10 Forward facility. For those of you who don't know, the 10 Forward was basically the bar where everyone hung out when they were off duty. Picard realizes he is risking an unusual kind of person in an unusual assignment, but is willing to take the risk. 
He knows, of course, that neither this assignment nor this person is critical to the Enterprise's mission or functioning, but he feels that his people and his vessel are better off for having them, and he considers this sufficient reason. I don't know about you, but I find that description troublingly vague. <laughs> I think maybe Jean didn't quite know who Guinan was or what to do with her when he was writing this. Anyway, back to Jean. The best thing about the 10-4 room, here he describes it with the wrong name, 10-4, for some reason. We all know it's actually 10-forward. Best thing about the 10-4 room, he says, in the opinion of most crew members, is Guinan. Her presence and ways perfectly complement what the facility was designed to do, i.e., act as an antidote to the pressure cooker confinement of a starship by furnishing a place for off-duty relaxation away from the cares of deep space and operating the starship. In an early episode, Data will have researched terms like bar and cocktail lounge from the times when the drug alcohol was served, and has discovered that Guinan performs almost exactly as the once-renowned sociology specialists known as bartenders were said to do. We do not know Guinan's age. She is a humanoid with many similarities to the human form, but also with some subtle differences that puzzle Dr. Crusher. Although she looks young in some ways, she also carries a feeling of great age and experience. She combines the loveliness of wisdom and child. We'll learn from Picard that she is at least several centuries old. Guinan's most noticeable quality is serenity of character. This quality is there even when she's laughing. It confers a special kind of beauty on her. She is a born catalyst, able to fit into a customer's mood. She seems to know whether a joke or some pieces of information or a bit of philosophy will make that particular crew member feel better. This doesn't at all duplicate Counselor Troy's Betazoid ability to sense the emotions of others. What is it about Guinan's life form that interests Captain Picard? Eventually, somebody will discover the answer, and will decide to keep their discovery confidential. As Picard discovered long ago, Guinan is a member of a listener life form. Something about her life form encourages others to be honest when they speak, and perhaps old-style bartenders had something of the same ability. That's it for the characters. Next time, we'll talk about script style. There's a whole lot of information in the Bible about what sorts of stories to tell and how to tell them. And that's when it really gets meaty. I love this stuff. If you like what you hear, please post a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd greatly appreciate it. I'd like to know what people think. So next time, we'll be delving back into the Star Trek The Next Generation Writer's Director's Guide so you can learn all about what it was like to write for Star Trek The Next Generation. Thanks for listening to Farfetched. Hope you come back next time.